0: Gresham College presents Monet, the River of Dreams, by Professor John House of the Courtauld Institute of Art. Um, I'm going to give the first word to William Wordsworth and the last word to Monet. 1802, William Wordsworth on Westminster Bridge. Earth has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of soul, who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. This city now doth like a garment, wear the beauty of the morning, silent, bare, ships, towers, domes, theatres, and temples lie open unto the fields and to the sky, all bright and glistening in the smokeless air. That's only the first eight lines, but it's the penultimate word I want to hold for a moment, smokeless. Last week, you saw a smokeless London. This week, you will see the results of environmental change, physical change, and aesthetic change. And I think it's important to keep all those things together as uh, London comes to look different, but also, just as crucially, London comes to be perceived differently. It's ways of seeing as much as what is actually seen that is our central story today. At the top, we have Turner's picture shown at the Royal Academy in 1835 of the burning of the old houses of parliament. And at the bottom, we have Constable's picture from the Royal Academy of 1832. Is it possible to turn the lights down a bit? I feel as if there's rather a lot of light on the screens. Is that the normal procedure? It feels... Are you okay? Can you see? All right, that's beautiful. And at the bottom, we have Constable, um, the uh, ceremonies for the opening of the new Waterloo Bridge, shown at the Royal Academy of 1832, although uh, 15 years after the actual event. And of course, if Wordsworth had had Waterloo Bridge to stand on. That's where he would have had his emotive morning because the view is actually much better from Waterloo Bridge. But in 1802, it didn't exist. And of course, here we are with Constable. We are right by Westminster Bridge looking downstream to the newly built Waterloo Bridge in the background. And in the Turner, we're looking in exactly the opposite direction from the newly opened Waterloo Bridge back to, you can see, Westminster Bridge with rather some red stuff around it as well. The small problem that they had with the building just beyond it um, but the point I want to make is here that these are, in a sense, history paintings. These are paintings about the physical history of London, about the major changes of London, but they're also paintings that do engage, in some sense, with the atmosphere of London as well, with the physical ambience, the air that, creates, that created London's extremely distinctive tenor and, indeed, very distinctive smell. Now, the changes are mapped out gradually in a number of texts and images, the changes of perception, as well as the physical change. And one of the most pioneering of these images is in an essay published by the French writer, the French polymath, Théophile Gautier, in 1842, which I'd like to quote for you, because it does seem to me to usher in the Thames that we're going to be looking at and a Thames that is the absolute antithesis of the crystalline vision of Canaletto, and, indeed, of Wordsworth's smokeless air. This is sunset as viewed from the customs house down in the docks, which we'll see in a moment. I'll never forget the magnificent spectacle that presented itself to my eyes. The gigantic arches of London Bridge stood out as dark silhouettes against the setting sun. A long trail of fire sparkled along the lapping waves. Clouds of violet smoke and fog bathed the space as far as Southwark Bridge, whose arches one could see vaguely brushed in. And on the south bank, the lines of the horizon were happily punctuated by monumental chimneys, which one could take for votive columns if Ionic or Doric capitals were in the habit of belching forth smoke. Their vigorous tones made the orange and lemon yellow tones of the sky stand out still more. This smoke, spread over everything, blurs harsh angles. It veils the meanness of buildings. It enlarges views. It gives mystery and vagueness to the most positive objects. In the smoke, a factory chimney readily becomes an obelisk. A warehouse of poor design takes on the airs of a Babylonian terrace. A grim row of columns changes into the porticos of Palmyra the symmetrical barrenness of civilization, the vulgarity of the forms it adopts, all become softened or disappear thanks to this kindly veil." Well, in a sense, it's the result of and the aesthetic of this kindly veil that we're looking at today. And after reading Gautier, it's very hard actually to talk oneself because even in an English translation, he is so unbelievably eloquent. But, I think that it's this process of actually seeing the fog, seeing the atmosphere of London as something that can materially transform the experience, can transform the everyday into something of great and startling and surprising, indeed unique beauty, that is really the story we're pursuing. But, it's a story that not every artist pursued. And here we have at the top, We have uh, David Roberts in 1861 painting the new Houses of Parliament, but with a sort of ambient light that could be pretty much almost anywhere. And then we have the remarkable capacity of Atkinson Grimshaw to pretend that mist and fog never existed down on the Thames at night time in 1884, looking back to St. Paul's from near London Bridge. But again, I want to emphasize that here, of course, we are dealing with the relationship between the Thames and the monuments that flank it. And that in the Roberts at the top, of course, the Houses of Parliament were absolutely new. The Victoria Tower, which you see there in the foreground, literally was completed at that particular moment in the very early 1860s. Of course, rebuilt after the fire that we just saw. And then we look through to Westminster Bridge, Waterloo Bridge, and on the right in the Roberts, the Shot Tower, on the site of what is now the Royal Festival Hall. But again there, the contrast between the new forms of the Houses of Parliament and the jumble of docks in the foreground, which is now that eloquent bit of Millbank Gardens where Tory politicians seem regular to be interviewed with their pinstripe suits and double-breasted jackets. Slight change of cultural ambience. But I do want to emphasize this business of material change, because, of course, the central part of London along the Thames becomes absolutely transformed by the emergence of railway, but particularly, of course, by the creation of the embankment, the Victoria Embankment, particularly the first tranche from Blackfriars through to the Houses of Parliament, which is opened in 1870. At the bottom there, you have the stretch between Waterloo Bridge and Blackfriars under construction in 1865 in a watercolor by E. A. Goodall, And at the top, we have a view looking out from the new embankment, presumably, while it's being constructed or just finished, we don't have an exact date, with the Hungerford Railway Bridge, the Charing Cross Railway Bridge, that is still there, although now masked by those very elegant new walkways, A friend of mine really objected to those walkways and said she really, really liked that old bridge that, you know, I think the walkways are um, an adornment. But again, the wonderful thing is the aesthetic debates about modernization go on and on. And we're looking, of course, straight over towards the site of what is now the Royal Festival Hall and the Queen Elizabeth Hall and the Blessed Hayward Gallery. But again here, this is put in really just to emphasize the questions of material change. The sense of a gradually changing aesthetic, I think, begins to emerge when we look at pictures like these. At the bottom, we have one of the heroes of our story, who I feel I'm allowed to talk about because he is, in fact, foreign, although he is not Monet. I'll come to him in a moment. At the top, a brief pass by W.L. Wiley, who painted that famous picture of the um, Thames down near the estuary in the 1880s called Toil Glitter... Grime and Something on a Flowing Tide, which is in the Tate, a picture, a wonderful industrial Thames picture. But this is the one that I wanted to emphasize, an early work by Wiley from 1870, done from the the view of, from the top of the monument, as far as one can see, with on the right, of course, the uh, Charing—sorry, uh, Cannon Street Railway, uh, and then in the dim distance, right in the center, and this is where I look for my laser pointer, we have the Houses of Parliament, But again here very much a sense that we are now looking, we're looking at monuments, we're looking at the physical changes of the environment with of course the emphasis on the railway as the central axis of what we see here. But it is also certainly the monumental London, the modern monumental London as mediated by the atmosphere. And when we come to Whistler at the bottom, this is one of the very earliest of his Thames scenes, which are essentially pictures where the fog is the predominant element. This is a picture that appears to be as early as the mid-1860s, It's a not particularly well-known canvas, it's a picture that's now in a private collection in North America, unfortunately, but it's a picture that certainly suggests that as early as this, Whistler is already very, very well aware of the way in which he can use the atmosphere of London to create an overall aesthetic ambience that absolutely overrides and absorbs the physical elements. Of the scene that he's looking at and what we are in fact looking from Chelsea where Whistler lived from the Chelsea embankment over towards, towards Battersea but and, and indeed one can compare the silhouette of the building in the centre that sort of rounded silhouette with the, and the two factory chimneys these can indeed be identified from contemporary photographs but the point is not To paint a picture of the place, the point is to use the ambient atmosphere as a way of creating an extraordinary aesthetic pictorial unity. But at the same time, I would insist all the way through looking at Whistler at his most seemingly non-representational. These are pictures of the place. These are ways of trying to convey something distinct about London. It's not just an aesthetic field. We're not looking at a proto-Mark Rothko. And then in the same year as the Wiley, we have another foreign visitor who is leaving France because of the Franco-Prussian War and uh, taking refuge from the possibility of getting enlisted. In fact, as far as one can see, he wouldn't have got enlisted, enlisted, but he left nonetheless. On this first visit, Monet painted three pictures of the Thames, of which two, this pair here, show the Pool of London and looking back up towards London Bridge, the the Tower of St. Magnus the Martyr, and indeed the Cannon Street Station. So, we're just below where the viewpoint, of course. You all know your London, I'm sure, amazingly well, but in case you don't, I will do the topographical orientation at various points. And on the right, we here, we have the Customs House. So, we're just down from Wiley's. Monument is just tucked away, literally, just hidden behind the building here, with a view going off in the panoramic distance beyond Monet's viewpoint here. But, of course, the Pool of London is not just an atmospheric ambience. Here I have Mr. and Mrs. S.C. Hall, The Book of the Thames, 1859. From the Tower Stairs, this is pretty much where we are here, from the Tower Stairs, the view looking either way is very striking. The river is crowded with shipping and steamers, and from this point begins that succession of vessels which affords the Voyager so grand an idea of the vast trade of the British metropolis. There are perhaps few sights in the world more striking, certainly none more calculated to make an Englishman proud of his country. The Pool of Thames is truly a grand and glorious sight the proudest station of the world. Well, English nationalism. What did a Frenchman make of it? Here is Élysée Reclus writing literally the following year in a guidebook to London, although quoting an English text with a rather different tone. It's by the Thames, Mr. Bulwer says, that the foreigner should enter London the breadth of the powerful river, the lofty factories with their sombre and funereal appearance, which line its sad banks, the thick fog through which one can only, with difficulty, make out the vague shadows of these gigantic contours, the marvellous silence with which one glides through the city of the nations alongside all the large ships, symbols of her power, the melancholy, The solemnity, the grandeur, the dimness of all the objects that surround you, prepare you for the sight of serious and austere splendors. I think there's an extraordinary combination here between a sense of the sort of gradually exploding commercial power and indeed maritime power and temporal power of Britain, London, England, (laughs) the, the, the conglomerate, but also a sense, a very, very strong sense of a very particular aesthetic quality in the experience of going through London. And here is Monet doing just the same thing ten years later, coming up into the Pool of London and playing on this contrast between the scale of it. Think of how different the scale of this is from um, the Seine in Paris. Monet, in fact, is brought up at La Havre on the Seine estuary in a major port. But I think the sheer scale of the London activities at this date would have still startled him, although he had had this experience of a great port-scape, you could call it, in his childhood at Lavre. And the third of Monet's pictures is, of course, the one that happily is owned by the National Gallery, the view of the um, Houses of Parliament. Now, one of the things about this that does immediately need to be emphasized is that almost everything in it is incredibly recently constructed. It's something that we feel is a sort of comfortable view of what we now readily view as a historic London. But the Houses of Parliament, as I said, Big Ben is completed in 1858, though it's not quite as pointy as this. The Victoria Tower, even a little bit later. Westminster Bridge, that you see there, is done in 1862. On the right, we have the Embankment. Uh, which is still being built. I mean, that is part of the structure of construction, and the lampposts which are on these brackets have not yet been installed. So, you're absolutely, it's been open to the public, but it's not yet complete. Nor is St. Thomas's Hospital, which is completed the following year in 1871. So, you do have here a scene that is absolutely of the moment. I remember when I was first looking at this picture years ago, things have changed slightly. I actually visualized it as being the 19th century equivalent of London Wall outside at that moment when there was that succession of those rather ugly rectilinear tower blocks going along it, which of course now have all given way to the extravaganza of postmodernism that surrounds us here, which is a rather different kettle of fish, and not perhaps quite so clear-cut about what it means by the modern. But I'm not talking about that today but instead wanting to emphasize the fact that Monet, by choosing this site, is choosing a site that is just as much of the moment as the docks. The docks are of the moment in terms of activity, although some of the buildings are older, and here all the structures themselves are new, and with this wonderful silhouetted treatment of the uh, workmen on this particular complicated estricade, which is probably part building some sort of landing stage or some way of landing materials in for the construction, say, of the lamp posts. Now, again, this is, again, to, to, to quote, um, two contrasting views of the effect of the London atmosphere here. Here's Hippolyte Taine, the great French author, who visits London very shortly after Monet and publishes his book on, London, on England in 1872, which has some wonderful descriptions of many aspects of London life and also the London landscape. I've just spent half an hour on Waterloo Bridge. The Houses of Parliament, blurred and indistinct, appear in in the distance, but a wretched pile of scaffolding. Nothing is discernible, and more particularly, nothing is living except a few steamboats skimming along the river. Black, smoky, unwearied insects. Great phrase. But also, of course, there is a, a... a residual feeling that what is happening to London isn't part of this rather murky, seemingly illegible poetry that you feel lurking behind Ten's account, but that it just is a besmirched city. It's a city that has been wrecked by the arrival of industry, so you still have that. And I will move on to give you um, three whistlers from the 1870s while I read you the Honorable Rollo Russell from the book called London Fogs. Of 1880. For Londoners, the fog contaminates the vital breath of heaven so that they lose the glorious and almost universal privilege of looking upon the clear azure above them. They lose all distant prospects, urban or rural, and the pleasant variations of cloud shadows which delight us in the views of great continental cities which are not blurred or blotted out by smoke." These things are sermons from nature which humanity has heed of. London is indeed hideous to look at, but would be less hideous without its smoke. Whistler did not see it that way and wrote at almost exactly the same moment to his sister-in-law when he's away from London, I begin rather to wish myself back in my own lovely London fogs. They are lovely, those fogs, and I am their painter. So here is Whistler, here are three of the key nocturnes. On on the the left, two of the earliest ones from 1871 at the top, 1872 at the bottom, and on the right, the famous Old Battersea Bridge from probably the mid-1870s. And one of the art historical teasers with which I've wrestled for years and years without ultimately resolving it is whether Monet visited Whistler while Monet is in London and realized that Whistler was on work at work on pictures like the one at top left. My own feeling is that the visual evidence is that it's extremely likely that he did and we know that Whistler is in the address book of other French artists, D'Aubigny, with whom Monet was in close contact at this date, but we have not yet found the document. It's one of those teasing things that I've been... I mean, it sounds awful, isn't it? Half of... most of a career spent trying to work out whether Monet actually met Whistler in 1870, 1871. Um, Literally, I've been working on on this problem for well over 30 years. Uh, Kind of sad, but never mind. Um, But again, I think that that sense of being able to use the paint so economically to create a sense of the overall ambient atmosphere, to create a unity, both of colour and tone, but also to quite an extent of touch. Certainly, Monet does create a broken touch on the river surface with the darker strokes that run across the foreground. But if one looks at this picture closely, both the sky and the treatment of the broader areas of water, there is, I think, a real similarity between it and the qualities that you get in the Whistler Nocturnes, particularly in in the two that you see there on the left. Now, Whistler, really, through this period, through the 1870s and 1880s, is the reference point. And again, I emphasize I'm allowed to talk about him since, of course, he was an American. So, he is a foreign artist in London, and indeed somebody whose identity, national identity, is something that he himself played with as a sort of conjuring trick. He could be British at certain points. He then could become fairly French at certain moments, and certainly American if he needed to be. So that there was a real strong sense that Whistler could be a sort of cultural chameleon, though not at all the way one normally associates with a chameleon of trying to blend himself into the cultural background. Rather, he consistently wants to emphasize his otherness in whatever circumstance he might find himself. So in London, he'd be either French or American. And in Paris, he would probably be trying to be chic enough to be thought to be a Parisian until you realize that it was even cleverer to be an American who looked like a Parisian. So anyway, I think that enough, Whistler is a a, a charming object of study and another great wordsmith, as you'll hear in a moment. But I would, before I read the famous Whistler quote, about the transforming powers of the fog, I would like to read another quote, and you'll find, remember back to the Gautier quote about the um, way in which the warehouses become like Palmyra, and so on, and then the factory chimneys seem as if they have cap- capitals on top of them, um, like great Greek antique columns, because a lot of this metaphorical imagery of the transformative powers of the mist seems to be in these texts before Whistler produces his formulation. So remember Gautier, and now listen to Aaron Watson, The Lower Thames, published in the magazine The Magazine of Art in 1883. For there is a marvellous quality in our London atmosphere. It brings quite near to us the effects that we ordinarily associate with distance. It enfolds all ugliness in a purple haze and subdues it That row of dusky dusky buildings of various heights and with tall chimneys looking like towers makes the best of possible backgrounds for the vivid colours of the Thames barges, which, with sloping masts and sails partially unfurled, cluster along what at low tide still deserves the name of shore. There is no portion of the Lower Thames which is more majestic and impressive than that which lies between the Houses of Parliament and Waterloo Bridge." The further bank, that's the Surrey bank, is just far enough away to lose its natural harshness in the softening influences of a dim atmosphere. On the south bank, there is ugliness and squalor enough. Everywhere, great poverty is visible side by side with the sources and the materials of great wealth. One knows all this, (coughs) leaning over the embankment and looking towards the Surrey side, but the knowledge of it does not disturb the picture in which all that is ugly and dismal glides into colour and form. And again, I think that that's a wonderfully precise, concise statement of the fact that the effects of atmosphere in London (coughs) were perceived as simply, if you like, obliterating questions of poverty, questions of the actual physical nature of urban life. It's a process of aestheticization, but again, it's juxtaposed with the knowledge of that life that is going on there, on the other side of the river, on the Surrey side, through the mists. So the awareness is there, but yet a space is carved out for the possibility of the quintessential aesthetic experience, which does not have to take into account the problematic social conditions of the people who lived there. So, remembering both Gautier and that last text by Watson, here is Whistler's famous version of the same idea, published in 1885 in his celebrated 10 o'clock lecture. That's a a 10 o'clock in the evening lecture. It's a late hour to lecture by this, wonderfully called Mr. Whistler's 10 o'clock. So, you had to stay up for the privilege. Here is Whistler. And when the evening mist clothes the riverside with poetry, as with a veil, and the poor buildings lose themselves in the dim sky, and the tall chimneys become campanile, and the warehouses are palaces in the night, and the whole city hangs in the heavens, and fairyland is before us. Then the wayfarer hastens home, the working man and the cultured one, the wise man and the one of pleasure, they cease to understand, as they have ceased to see, and nature who for once has sung in tune, sings her exquisite song to the artist alone." So, again, this idea of this transformative thing, the metaphors here lead on to Venice, where Whistler had recently spent extended periods. But the idea that somehow the structures that you see silhouetted in the mists here Battersea and so on, and on the bottom left, in fact, we're looking um, upstream towards Battersea on the left and Cremorne Gardens on the right, the celebrated pleasure place, which is, of course, the subject of many Victorian genre painters, including, I think, the one by Phoebus Levin is in the museum here, where you can see a wonderfully sort of wide-ranging profile of all the different types of people who went to Cremorne Gardens for different sorts of entertainment. But here, Cremorne Gardens, with all its reputation, is reduced to a series of lights reflected mysteriously across the water. Again, the social element being drained out in favor of the aestheticized effect. But yet, its title was Cremorne Lights, this picture, Nocturne in, I think, grey and silver, Cremorne Lights, so that the pointer is there in the title, which enables you to make that chain of associations, but then, in a sense, withdraws them by the way in which the scene is treated. Now, perhaps the most sort of evocative statement about the issue of aestheticization comes from Oscar Wilde in 1889. One's first reaction is that this is rather silly. Your second reaction, I think, is that it's not at all silly. Where, if not from the Impressionists, do we get these wonderful brown fogs that come creeping down our streets? To whom, if not to them and to their master, by which he means Whistler, to whom If not to them and their master, do we owe these lovely silver mists that brood over our river and turn to faint forms of fading grace, curved bridge, and swaying barge. The extraordinary change that has taken place in the climate of London in the last ten years is entirely due to this particular school of art. One does not see anything until one sees its beauty." then and only then does it come into existence. At present, people see fogs not because there are fogs, but because poets and painters have taught them the mysterious loveliness of such effects. There may have been fogs for centuries in London, I dare say they were, but no one saw them, and so we don't know anything about them. They didn't exist until art had invented them. And I think that's a fascinating statement of the sense in which our, our vision is conditioned by cultural frameworks. There am I moving from wild to being pedantic academic, I'm sorry, <laughs> that was not a rather downbeat way of summarizing this very eloquent passage of wild. But again it reminds one that these frameworks are absolutely cultural, they're not just simply about unique individual subjects going out into a physical environment and experiencing their surroundings, but rather they're about something much more complex than that which means that We can only process our surroundings by a chain of associations which attribute values to the different aspects of what we see. And what we've got here is this dramatic value shift from the um, uh, appreciation of the monuments, the appreciation of the physical things, to a sense that the place acquires its poetry through this apprehension of the atmosphere and the way that the atmosphere actually transformed the experience of the mundane into a metaphorical level, into a form of personal internalized dream, if you like. And even the solidly materialist Emile Zola was, to some extent, party to all this. He gave an interview to The Guardian, rather wonderfully, on the 3rd of October, 1893, after visiting London. Reminded of his experiences of a London fog, Monsieur Zola said he believed that it suited the landscape, London landscape better than the sunlight. Westminster Abbey and the Thames looked heightened in artistic effects in its folds. Moreover, he noted that all the Turners that he, sh- he, he saw in the National Gallery then, showed London in such a fog. On the whole, said the novelist, I came away from London with a profound admiration of its wealth, its grandeur, and its immensity. Each bridge is a cyclopean structure. We have nothing in France to equal such things, (coughs) nothing to be compared to the Port of London. Asked if he was about to write something on the city, he said, I may probably go back there live in a quiet hotel, and take my notes at leisure. I shall introduce the Thames above all. It so deeply impressed me." Well, that never happened. We could have had a Zola novel called La Tamise, Actually, from what I've recently been reading, his research trips used uh, for the extraordinary novel, which I've actually, for quite other reasons, just been reading La Terre, the earth novel, the peasant novel. Apparently, his research lasted him the inside of a week, which enabled him to write 600 pages of sort of ghastly, tragic, sort of semi-pornography of a relentless relentless sort which implied deep deep level knowledge of the whole fabric of rural life but what i want to come back to is his idea of going to live in a quiet hotel because the quiet hotel he would probably have gone to in the 1890s would have been called the savoy and here you have it on the right with a set of engravings. These are both from Eric Shanes's book about London and the Thames. Um, here you have a publicity engraving from a magazine uh, emphasizing all its facilities on the right. It's, of course, about to be reopened, as we know. And on the left, and this is, I think, the most important thing for my argument, you've got the fact that by this date, the fog, the London atmosphere, was already part of the tourist appeal of the city. Because here we have our terrace, looking down on the river with in the background. We move from, in the foreground, the coloured effects of the fashionable people out there dining um, or lunching, I suppose it would be, given the fact it's daylight, and the trees through to the almost monochrome of the embankment and the Houses of Parliament in the background and the Hungerford Railway Bridge with a little bit of colour on the Thames barges. There is one small element there that I will come back to and I have not, which I have not mentioned, that vertical thing, just to the left of center, which is also of some interest in art historical terms, for two reasons, one of which you'll see. But the point I'm making is really here that it is actually part of the advertising propaganda of the Savoy to present it as having this viewpoint into the fog, and I think that that is enormously interesting by around 1900. And in the late 1890s, two artists spend time in upstairs rooms at the Savoy, of which the first was Whistler, in very sad circumstances, because his wife was in the bedroom with them, him dying of cancer, and at the time, he does these extraordinary, minimalist little lithographs of the views out of the window. 1896. On the bottom left, we're looking out over Waterloo Bridge. Top left, we're looking out over the Charing Cross Railway Bridge, and ditto, of course, on the right, with the Savoy Pigeons on his own balcony, the two little pigeons, looking out over the view across the Hungerford Railway Bridge, Westminster Bridge, and, of course, there, the Houses of Parliament. So, he finds lithography at this moment, at this very difficult moment, the only medium he can really work with, but also a medium tremendously well-suited to rendering these effects of atmosphere, in this case, entirely tonally, of course, entirely in monochrome. And three years later, and I think, again, very possibly, again, the Whistler and Monet we know by this date knew each other, but uh, they do become quite good friends, documentedly quite good friends in the late 1880s and early 1890s. (coughs) But we still don't know whether or not Whistler met Monet at some point and told him, or perhaps Monet saw these prints, copies of these prints, and suggested to him that a visit to the Savoy might be a good idea. Monet certainly had been toying with the idea of coming back to London after his first visit there in 1870-1871, and he pays a couple of short visits without painting, one in the late 80s, one in the early 1890s. But the idea of doing a major London series becomes absolutely focused as one of his prime missions, one of his prime ambitions from around 1890 onwards as he begins to work in these fairly systematically organized series that are the keynote of his later work. He comes to London for three visits in successive years, 1899, 1900, 1901, and he paints a very large number of canvases here, or at least he begins a very large number of canvases here, of three subjects, the view that Whistler had done to the, across Waterloo Bridge to the east from the Savoy, the view that Whistler had also done down to the south across from the Savoy towards the Houses of Parliament and the, the bridges, and the third one, which he only begins on the second visit, is a view from St. Thomas's Hospital, sorry, onto the Houses of Parliament. But the strange thing, of course, is that the major group of pictures does not include that vertical object, nor does Whist- do Whistler's prints. The vertical object is, of course, Cleopatra's needle, and there are three unfinished paintings by Monet where Cleopatra's needle is in there as indeed it is absolutely, of course, there. I had the very great good fortune to go up into uh, one of those Savoy rooms one time, actually in the nearest thing we can do to a London fog these days, and it was, um, the needle is absolutely there in the foreground of your visual field. It's quite inescapably there. And I think the question absolutely arises is why does he omit it? Why does Whistler omit it? And I think that, it has to be because he felt that it intruded into this sense of atmospheric ambience and unity, which he saw as the keynote of the series. So we have these presumably date from the first trip. He starts mapping it in and then thinks it just won't do. It just is spoiling that sense of atmospheric unity that is the point of my being here. and decided he would, it's not, as far as I can see, been erased from the other pictures. I've looked quite hard to see whether there is a hidden columnar form in the foreground of the other ones, and I've never found a pentimentoed out version of Cleo's needle. But he just decided it wouldn't do, and so he dropped it. And I think it's really important that he felt that that freedom was something he had, to manipulate his scene. His aesthetic or ethic, if you like, of a certain form of naturalism did not stop him from dropping the needle. And I thought then I would just put in I would just give you, I will be running to and fro across the next sequence of images. Here we have four of the Waterloo Bridges now. Again, most of the time we are looking into fog, but we're also mostly looking into the sunlight. So that he begins mostly Waterloo Bridge pictures in the morning, when the light is over in the east, when he's looking eastwards. Uh, most conspicuously, I think, in the one at top right, where we're, of course, looking into the sun. The one top left is an exception where we've got direct light on the bridge. It would probably be um, about, well, it's still probably a morning picture because of the way the shadows fall on the columns on the bridge. This is, of course, the original Waterloo Bridge that was falling down, sadly, by the 1930s and replaced by the equally handsome one at the moment, which I think is another great London Bridge, which is not what you can say about all London's bridges. The view down towards the Houses of Parliament is usually done during the midday and into the early afternoon. As we see, we have the sun to the left, or we have the sun at the top right, off to the right. But again, that's only an early afternoon sun. again, he's there in winter all the time, I emphasize. Sorry, I should have said he's always there in winter, (coughs) so as he has very short working days, but at the same time, he has a greater likelihood of fog. And then, the pictures done from the uh, St. Thomas's Hospital are um, afternoon pictures, again, looking into the sunlight. And the effect of the looking into the light means that, you first of all, that you actually get the sun itself in the fog, more or less directly represented, directly in the two at the bottom. <coughs> and also, of course, that the forms of the buildings themselves are silhouetted, that apart from that first Waterloo Bridge that we had at top left there, you can, oh, the two, both the two on the left, you can sort of see the structure of the bridge. But mostly, the forms are treated essentially as silhouettes. You don't get that sense of three-dimensional space. You certainly don't get the, any of the detailing, of course, on the Houses of Parliament. And if, uh, Houses of Parliament, if anything, is a, a building with detail. And I thought, just for fun, I'll go back to these foursomes. But I thought it was quite fun just to do this, to give you the joy of PowerPoint. And to remember... <laughs> I mean, this is, I'm a fairly recent convert. And um, this, remember that the exhibition that Monet finally holds in the spring of 1904 has 34 of these, of the three motifs. We've only got 12 here. So that there would have been clusters of around 12 of each of these subjects as a separate unit. And here, as I say, I've just blocked them in on the screen. I thought this was the (coughs) maximum number I could get in on the screen without it becoming just like a a postage stamp collection. But um, it does give you a strong sense of the way that the series function by, in terms of variations, and I think that this is rather crucial to this question about Monet's attitude towards his subject matter. From the beginning of the experiment of painting these groups of serial paintings, Monet is absolutely focused on this idea of the unifying effects of the atmosphere. Here he is, in 1891, talking at the first of these exhibitions, that of what we now call the grain stacks. And I won't go into the reason why they're no longer haystacks, but this is again a matter that has troubled art historians deeply now for nearly 30 years. Here's Monet. For me, a landscape does not exist in its own right, since its appearance changes at every moment, but the surrounding atmosphere brings it to life, the air and the light, which vary continually. For me, it's only the surrounding atmosphere that gives subjects their true value. The paintings only acquire their full value through the comparison and succession of the entire series." Then a few years later, he said, To me, the motif itself is an insignificant factor. What I want to reproduce is what lies between the motif and me. He wants to paint the air around the objects and not the objects themselves. Now, that implies a really radical abandonment of the actual subject matter, and certainly when we look at the range of different subjects that Monet chooses for the series, this is very much a matter for, I think, ongoing debate among art historians. My view is, that the primary reason he chose particular subjects is because of the atmospheric effects he was going to get out of them, rather than because of the symbolic content of those subjects. And that is a very vexed issue in relation to the pictures of Rouen Cathedral, which were exhibited in 1895. There's in fact going to be a gigantic, the biggest Monet exhibition ever in the Grand Palais in Paris this coming autumn. And um, so, you can go and you'll have a series experience there. Um, and, as well as the rest of Monet's career. But I'm just saying this is a little flyer for the Grand Palais, though I have a horrible feeling it'll be a rather crowded exhibition, which I'm even more uh, shocked to say is possibly what they're hoping for. But then we get to the question of what does he actually make of London? I still think that the primary reason why London is extraordinary for him and a place he has to come and paint at this length is because of the atmospheric effects. And here's Monet again talking about London. This is while he's there. The fog in London assumes all sorts of colours. There are black, brown, yellow, green and purple fogs. I was going to say frogs for a moment and suddenly realised that's not quite right. Um, And the interest in painting is to get the objects as seen through all these fogs. My practised eye has found that objects change in appearance in a London fog more and quicker than in any other atmosphere, The challenge is to get every change down on canvas. Well, here is Monet very much presenting himself as the naturalist. And then a couple of times later on in the last part of his life, he talks to the dealer René Gampel about his experience of London. What I like most of all in London is the fog. How could English painters of the 19th century have painted its houses brick by brick? Those fellows painted bricks they didn't see, bricks they could not see. It's the fog that gives London its marvelous breadth. Its regular, massive blocks become grandiose in this mysterious cloak." And then, a couple of years later, another conversation with Gampel. I so love London, but I only love it in winter. In summer, it's nice enough with its parks, but that's not nearly as good as the winter with the fog, because without the fog, London would not be a beautiful city. It's this fog that gives it its breadth, its magnificent breadth. Its regular blocks, regular massive blocks, become grandiose in this mysterious mantle. So, there he is really talking about the fact that these subjects, although for us, in many ways, we'd see them as very loaded, because at the top we have the view through from the smart side of the river, from, in fact, a very smart hotel, though it wasn't quite as smart at that point in 1900 as it became a few years later. Monet came back a few years later and said it had been rather spoiled, that too many millionaires, I think he felt, although he was one himself, but he didn't like to play on that. So we've got the contrast here between our viewpoint on the smart side and the industrial Surrey side, which is, of course, played on in some of those texts I've read you. Then in the middle, we've got, of course, the symbolic site of the Houses of Parliament, and ditto at the bottom. So you could certainly see these as pictures that are absolutely about London's great sights. But at the same time, I think it would be right to say that the primary motivation for choosing to paint here, and also choosing to paint those scenes, was because the particular configurations of forms acquired these effects, these extraordinary veiled effects in the London fogs. And he tells us in a... um, a letter, sorry, in an interview later on about the problems he had on his, uh, in his Savoy Hotel balcony. At the, <coughs> at the Savoy Hotel, or at St. Thomas's Hospital, from where I took my viewpoints, I had over a hundred canvases on the go of a single subject. Not quite true, but never mind. By searching feverishly through these sketches, I would choose one that was not too far away from what I could see, from the effect that is outside. It, but in spite of everything, I'd change it completely. When I'd stopped work, shuffling through my canvases, I would notice that I'd overlooked precisely the one which would have suited me best and which was at my fingertips. Wasn't it stupid? But I think we have to imagine that as a perfectly realistic scenario, that he would have all the pictures around him, and as the light changed, he would have them all half visible so he could quickly pick one up that looked more or less like what is in front of him. But... The process was much more complex than this. This sounds like it's all done like the celebrated impressionist sunrise. The whole thing meant to be in principle done in half an hour. He had three long visits to London for two or three months at a time. He leaves London last in the spring of 1901. These paintings are finished for exhibition in the spring of 1904. And many of them are dated 1902, 1903, 1904, which are years when Monet was not in London. So, and we know from letters, too, that he was basically spending his winters, every winter, reworking the London pictures back at Giovanni. In the summer, he was painting the water garden and redesigning the water garden. In the winter, he was working away at the London paintings. So, that the final results of these paintings are not, I think, at all closely related to the way they would have looked when he finally left the London painting uh, period in the spring of 1901. And that does, of course, imply something about the idea, sense that there is an idea of London lying behind them, as well as simply the fruits of direct observation. And I think there's one wonderful moment in his time, where he makes this, in his time in London, where he makes this very clear, that he's not just working from immediately what he sees, but that there is a preconceived idea about what London ought to look like. And this is, at one point, where he finds that there is a period of successive days where, damn it, there's no fog. and There are some wonderful descriptions where he sits on his balcony drumming his fingers, saying, can't those people out there in the factories quickly stoke up their factories so that it starts belching out a whole lot of filthy, polluting, rubbish, that's not the phrase he uses, Um, smoke. But what he says is that he has started painting some of these pictures when there isn't much fog, But he says he's very worried about them, because they are not London-like enough. And that is extraordinary, because of course he's here and painting London but it means that he has an idea of what a London-like picture ought to look like, and that is pretty much what we see here, this range of different atmospheric effects. But it means that even when he's working from nature, he has some preconception about what should be the dominant tone of this particular series. And that dominant tone is one that when (laughs) the winds are blowing and the People in the factories have not yet stoked up their furnaces, he just cannot find as he looks off his balcony. But I think it's a reminder really of how much of even the type of artist who is working from nature, trying indeed in principle to work directly from what he sees, although he has to rework it to turn it into a finished picture, but how far he is also working towards some preconception of what his subject ought to look like. And in this case, and this is really my concluding point, that the London that London ought to be like this. London ought to be this extraordinary parade of polychromatic fogs that transform the brick by brick of the city into these magnificent monuments in paint, not in reality. It's that process of transformation that is, of course, the fundamental point. But, of course, the last thing one has to say is that if Monet had been a little bit younger, life would have become very disappointing because of the Clean Air Act of the <laughs> 1950s. And I must say, I, and I suspect one or two of my audience, am old enough to remember the last of the pea Supers, or pretty much the last of the pea Supers. I was at school in London for the first winter in 1958-59, and uh, there was one in that year, which I remember vividly being in a bus. In fact, coming up from Clapham, I was in the Clapham omnibus, which is rather wonderful, which is another one of our cultural stereotypes, and I remember somebody having to walk in front of the bus because you couldn't see anything, and it was a very strange colour, but that was uh, uh, some time ago, and um, I'm sure many of you have had that experience, but of course now Monet's no London is no longer a beautiful city, sadly, because we have done something to clean it up, and now the pollution that we have is invisible rather than visible. Thank you so much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.